0: Our scripture this morning comes from Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 to 23 and then in chapter 3, 1 and 5 through 10. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. If we have not met, my name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer as well. It's good to see so many of you this morning and to those of you who are worshiping with us at home. Uh, We're glad to have you with us as well. We continue in a series this morning that we've been doing for a number of weeks on crucial spiritual practices or habits. Uh, Now, starting next week, we're going to take eight weeks and we're going to talk about four daily habits and four weekly habits that we'd love to see become a part of our regular rhythm of life together as a church. But before we've done that, we've taken a number of weeks and tried to introduce this whole series by thinking of some bigger picture kinds of things when it comes to spiritual habits, and that's the case this morning as well, as we talk about this last kind of introductory, uh, talking about what it looks like to have both habits of embracing and also habits of resisting, because we need to be putting off and putting on, as the text here says. Now, Richard Foster has written a number of books that have profoundly shaped me. Uh, He talks. He writes a lot about spiritual disciplines. He's he's kind of a guru in Christian circles. Uh, At least he's you know somebody that a lot of people have have heard of. And my first introduction to him was in college. There were a group of us in our college ministry who were particularly godly, and of course I was a part of that group. That's sarcasm if you don't know, if you've not you know just in case you didn't catch on to that. Uh, But I say that because for a whole year, when I was a sophomore in college, for a whole year. We got up because we were Baptists, and so we had to do it harder and better than everybody else did. And so we got up at 6 a.m. every morning uh, and made our way up to the church, which is up the hill from where the dorms were. And we, at 6 a.m., we read this book that Richard Foster wrote about prayer and prayed together for a whole year. We liked it so much, the next year we did his book on the spiritual disciplines. And so it was very formative in that time of my life. And I picked that book up again recently, preparing for these these series of, of sermons And I've forgotten how it began, but in the introduction, here's the very first sentence of his book on the spiritual disciplines. He says this, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant gratification, instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. And as I think about the things rolling around in our culture, as I think about what it means for us to be a church moving forward, not only because I'm not as concerned about post-COVID world as much as I am how it has pushed us into a post-Christian world. And as I think about what it means for us to live as people of faith in a post-Christian world, uh, you're going to, it's going to absolutely demand depth. You're not going to be able to be a shallow person, a shallow Christian, and make it because there's so many, there's so much of the scaffolding has been removed, so much of the, the you know, you're going so against the current of the culture now that it's going to require depth. And so I just want to say. Uh, that we and our leaders have talked about this, but we believe over the next 5, 10, 20 years that we have to be all in on creating deep people. That we need to be deep people. And that's what this text is about. It's about how to be, how to be a deep person, how to have a deep life. And so, my question to you this morning is just this is that what you're looking for? Are you here because you know that you need depth? Are you a person of depth? Because that's what, this, that's what this is about here. And to have a deep life, we learn three things in this text. If you're going to have a deep life, you have to understand first how change happens, how spiritual change really happens in your life, the way you can become something different than you might currently be now. Secondly, you have to strategically be replacing old practices and habits with new ones. And that's the topic of this series, so that's why we chose this text. But thirdly, you need to be acting according to reality and not your feelings. Though that's, really, that's really the pathway to a deep life, to understand how change spiritually happens, to be replacing old habits and old practices with new ones, and to be acting in everything that you do according to reality, not your feelings. And so we're going to look at the text along those headings. But as we do so, would you just pray a short prayer with me? So, Father, we're not here because we're good, but because we're yours. So may your spirit come now and make these dry bones live as we receive this word from you. Forgive the preacher his sins, for they are many. We would see Jesus in him only. Amen. And so first, to have a deep life, you have to understand how spiritual change happens. And I want to focus on Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And then even inside of that, that little grouping of verses there. But Paul writes, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, and so forth. And you must put on, he goes on to say in verse 12, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. But then inside of that big, long group of verses, I want you to really pay careful attention to verses 9 and 10, because you have the same language there of putting off and putting on. He says... You have to put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so for spiritual change to happen, you have to be putting off or putting away or putting to death the old self and putting on the new. And you'll see it's not put off and put on, okay? That's in your, do you see that typo there in your? That, that's, this isn't a sermon about golf, okay, I'm sorry, that's later, later this afternoon. That was there because it, was, it first was putting off and putting on, and then it became put off and put, oh wait, put on, so there you go, that's how that stuff happens. You have to be putting off and putting on. Putting off the old self, putting away, putting it to death, and putting on the new thing that God is making you to be. So it's a description of sanctification. And that word just describes the ongoing process of becoming less and less like the old you and becoming more and more like the real you. Less and less like the old you and more and more like the real you, if you belong to Jesus. Which leads to the first thing that I want to say, which is this, is that Christianity, true Christianity, is something more than just mere moral improvement. Take Paul's metaphor here. This is describing the words here. Are describing a change of clothes. That's what these wor- words really refer to in the original language. So, becoming a Christian—if you want to follow that metaphor—becoming a Christian isn't just washing your old clothes. It's—it's it's getting a whole new wardrobe. You throw everything away, and you get a whole new—you get a whole new set of clothes. All the old worn-out stuff, you throw it in the dumpster, or you give it away to somebody, and and you get—you get, you get every—everything is new. You get all new stuff now. I, I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. You won't be surprised to find out better. I like his metaphor better than Paul's metaphor. And so I'm going to mix some metaphors here, but just hang with me. Lewis said that when you become a Christian, most people anyway, he said you, you, you imagine that God is going to do a, something like a kitchen renovation. You know, you think, ah, he'll, you know, something minor. You know, there's some touch-up paint that we need to bring in here, maybe some new countertops, a few little things. But then God comes into your life and he starts ripping out the floor and ripping out the drywall and taking everything down to the studs. And he says it's very disorienting at first, and it's hard to know, you know, what to, what to do with all of this. But here's what he goes on to say. Now, again, kind of mixing metaphors. He says, he says this, in actuality, what God's doing is this that he's going to make us into creatures that can obey the command, be perfect. Jesus said, be perfect. And C.S. Lewis said, he's actually, what he, the scope of what he has come to do in our lives is to make us people who can actually obey that command. He says, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love that we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror reflecting back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, His own boundless power and delight and goodness. And here's what he says the process will be long, and in parts very painful, but that is what we're in for, nothing less. Now he goes on in the very next chapter of Mere Christianity, which that chapter is one of my favorite chapters in the book. It's entitled "Nice People Are New Men," and he's just posing that question. And again, he takes up a different metaphor, so don't get confused by all the mixing of metaphors here. But he says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature that soars over fences which could never have been jumped before. And so the very first thing, that we learn from Paul here is that God intends to do more than just make you a better version of yourself. He intends to make you new. He intends to make a whole new you. And when you become a Christian, that is what you're in for, nothing less. Now notice the language of the text in verses six and seven. Do you see where he talks about once, but now? He has this this language that follows this pattern, once, But now, you once were this, but now you're this. And for every one of us, there was a time when we walked in immorality and epithemia and idolatry, but not anymore. Now things are different. In Corinthians, Paul describes a sinful lifestyle full of sexual deviancy and idolatry, selfishness and greed. But then he says to those people, he says, that is what some of you were, but not anymore. And so don't get the wrong idea. These things, these, they're in verse 5 and 6, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, and then anger, wrath, and malice, and all that he describes down below. These things, they may still be there. That's not what he's saying here. You might find them in your life from time to time. You might have to wrestle them out of your life. But if you're a Christian, something has happened you no longer, and so the the consequences is that you no longer walk in these things. You no, this is the terminology he uses. You no longer live in them. You're no longer characterized by them. They don't dominate your life any longer the way they did before because you've been changed. But it doesn't just happen automatically. It doesn't happen automatically. Um, I am not a car person. Like The only thing I know to do with a car that's not working right is to take it to somebody who can fix it and hope that I have enough money in the bank account to pay for whatever they've got to do. That's my only strategy. That's my only strategy. So it's a good thing I'm a pastor, right? Because then I never have to worry about any of that. Just, you know, give money to whoever needs it. So, I don't know anything about cars, but I, I did, I did uh, Tim Keller uses this analogy that I thought was very helpful, and he says this is the way it works, so I'm just trusting him, because again, I have no idea, but an internal combustion engine, so we're going to talk, can you believe we're talking about, it? this is ridiculous, but there are two strokes, here's how it works, I, 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 I googled it, Wikipedia said it, so it, it has to be right, right, there are two strokes in, a, in a, an internal combustion engine in a car, There's that, that the two strokes together complete the power cycles. So the way the car works is when the pistons, there's an upstroke and then a downstroke. The upstroke called the compression stroke, the downstroke called the combustion stroke. And that's what creates the power for the car to go is as the pistons go up and down and up and down, it creates what, you know, all of the energy the car needs to move. Now here, Paul says there are two strokes that power your spiritual life. There's the upstroke and the downstroke. There's the downward stroke. What Keller goes on to describe as the killing stroke. So Paul says it in three different ways in these verses. And look at each with me for a minute. You put to death, verse 1 of chapter 3, what is earthly in you. That's mortification. You go to war against sin until you kill it. That's what we're supposed to do. To go to war with these things in our lives until we kill them. So you you put to death. Down in verse 8, he says, you put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, and so forth. You put them away. And this, this is... Something like um, every May for the last number of years, I've gone to Seattle with the senior class at my kid's school, and it's typically in the 40s at night there, and so I, I leave all my uh, winter clothes out until that trip, but when I get home, I go through this ritual, I take all of my warm clothes and I pack them up in plastic bins and I put them away for the summer because I have kind of a small closet and I kind of have to do this but and I do this and as I do I just I listen to sad music and I just grieve and get ready for the long months of summer in Florida and know that it's going to be six or seven or eight months and I'm not going to need any of the flannels of the sweatpants and so forth until November but really probably February or something like that so And I go through this process, you put it away because I don't need it. It's no longer relevant. It doesn't have anything to do with my day-to-day life. You put it away. He says, this is what you're supposed to do with anger and wrath and malice and so forth. And then in verse 9, the third time he says, you put it off. You put off the old self. So you, you put to death and you put away and you put off. You change out of the old clothes. You make an effort to identify the idols and you pull your heart off of them to weaken or to immolate, immolate, <clears throat> eliminate their hold on you. Now, these are all vivid images <coughs> Excuse me, of the downward stroke, the killing stroke. But then there's also the upward stroke, or what Tim Keller calls the setting your heart stroke. And this also is stated in a number of different ways. So again, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind, verse 2, on things that are above and not things on earth. And this refers to making Jesus and not the other things in your life your ultimate source of love and meaning. That the only way to displace an idol or an, an epi desire is to replace it with a greater affection. The only way to replace something that's got too strong a hold on your heart is with a more powerful Love. And so he says, seek things above. Set your mind on things above where Christ your life is. And then in verse 10, he says, put on the new self. You have to put it on. You put off. You change out of the old stuff, but you got to put on the new stuff. And then verse 12, put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility. And so these are the clothes that we're meant to change into. In Romans 13, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So this language of putting off and putting on is everywhere in the Bible. So these are the two strokes of the internal spiritual combustion engine. You put off and you put on. Repentance and faith. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't do one without the other. But let me say this as well before we move on. This is not mere externalism. The text is clear up in in chapter two, verse 20 and 21. This is why I included this. He says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is the way we typically try for change, through sheer willpower in keeping the rules. But look at what he says. I want to draw your attention to verse 23 again. We've already referenced it in the last number of weeks, but it's so important where he says these things, these, these rules, these, ritual, these, these just external things that you do, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Bible says that we speak and we act from the overflow of the heart, from either the good treasure or the evil treasure that is stored up inside. Your will, you know, your daily decision-making and actions, your will and all of that serves the heart. The will has no power over the heart. And So the key to putting off and putting on is to drill down past mere behavior to, and let me just use some of Tim Keller's words here, too. The habits of the heart and the patterns of your mind and emotions that make you prone to sin. Identifying background attitudes of self-pity and bitterness, self-indulgence or anxiety that set you up for particular sinful behaviors. And then to weaken the sinful roots and structures of your heart so that these sin patterns won't keep reasserting themselves. Now you do that. You do that by taking your heart to Jesus. By setting your affections and your deepest desires on him. So, for example, in Colossians 3, verse 4, which we didn't read, it says, talking about Jesus, it says, when Christ appears, and there's just this little phrase, he says, when Christ appears, who is your life? Christ, who is your life? And that's the key. You have to make Jesus your life, which means that when you experience epi-emotions, when you're more angry than you should be or more scared than the, than the situation warrants or more despairing than reality really should make you, then you have to ask, okay, what's going on? Something's obviously off in my life here. Has something else besides Jesus become my life? Have I put something in the center of my life that doesn't belong there? And when you find it, you put it aside. You look at it. This sounds silly, but, but this is really, you look at it and you say, you are not my life, only Christ is my life. You're a good thing but I don't need you to have life and joy. All I need is Jesus. He is my life. Now, all of this is from two pages in Tim Keller's new book on the resurrection, and it's marvelous, and you should read it. But here's what he says. He says, when you do that, when you go through that little exercise that I just, that I just uh, described for you, when you do that, you're shooting an antidote right into the heart that lessens the fear and the despair and the anger, which makes you less likely to fall into sin. So putting off and putting on. You got to understand how spiritual change happens you have to understand the dynamics of the internal spiritual combustion engine of the soul and the way it works but secondly if you're going to have a deep life you have to not only do that but you have to be intentionally replacing old practices with new ones look in verse 9 it's really significant it says put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self So you change by putting off old practices, because they're practices that are reinforcing the sinful roots and structures of your heart, and you put on new practices that sow to the spirit instead. And this is what we've been talking about, and this is what we're going to be talking about. The Greek word there is praxis. Literally, the word praxis, which refers to the way your beliefs go from being just something that you theoretically, you know, think is true to a part of your lived experience, Psychology talks about practices, praxis. Education talks about praxis. It's an important part of those disciplines and many others. My grandmother, who uh, will turn 98 in July, and she's just going strong, she lived with us for five years or so until just a couple of years ago. And we brought her to live with us because she suffered from dementia uh, that was progressing. And she was non-functioning in a lot of ways except for her routine, what was fascinating to watch was there was a certain number of things, she, could, she couldn't remember barely anything, but there were a certain number of things that she had no part, she had no problem remembering because they had become so ritualized that the part of her brain that didn't function properly wasn't engaged. She was on autopilot because she had so internalized certain rituals and behaviors, certain practices and that's the way a habit works. Psychologists generally agree that much of what is fundamentally shaping our lives is happening unconsciously. And so half of the actions, almost half of the actions we take on a daily basis are due to habit, not choice. And so habits are really important. That's why we're taking the time to talk about them. And what we learn here from this text and also from the parallel passage in Ephesians 4 is that habits are created from two different directions. So in Ephesians 4, it's almost word for word the same there. But there, Paul says, put off your old self, same language as here, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so the very first thing we learn is that habits are the expression of internal sinful epi-desires which drive our behavior, which reinforce the desires, which further entrench us in a certain way of doing life and it's a vicious cycle. So if you look at your day-to-day schedule and your patterns, if you look at your calendar and your rhythms and you wonder, how did this happen? How did I get here? How did my life become this? The first answer is, you're walking, you're living in a matrix of desires that are in many cases operating on a subconscious level. And you have to make the connections between your epi desires and your practices. Okay, that's the connection you have to make. You have to make the connection between these desires that are operating and the way they're expressing themselves in the ways that you're living your life. And so I've been feeling stretched thin at work recently, and uh, I was telling Ashley the other day um, that every summer, not this part, I was telling her in just a minute, but every summer I, um, I get to the summer and I just look forward to things slowing down, and it never slows down. Does anybody else have that experience? I think all of the snowbirds will go home and the roads will be quiet. Yeah, that's not true. And things are gonna just slow down. I'm gonna finally have uh, the space that I need at work and it just doesn't ever seem to happen. And so I've I've been I've been um, I've been just experiencing that and so Thursday I just spent some time in prayer asking questions like this, like, why am I so busy? What is, what do I always seem to why is it that I always seem to have too much to do? You know, is it because I'm I'm trying to prove myself? Is it because I have an epi desire to achieve because I am an Enneagram three, you know, is it because I don't trust the Lord to provide for my family that I have an epi desire for control or for comfort, control, whatever it might be. And that's the work you've got to do. You got to, you got to go down into those. Now I wish I could say I found the answer. I haven't, the Lord and I are still talking about those things. (laughs) So you probably know better than I do. So if you know the answer to those questions that I'm thinking about myself, just please be gentle with me, but come and talk to me about it because it would be really helpful to me, because I, I, the Lord and I got to talk about some more, I guess, but you got to make, you got to do that work. You got to draw those connections. That's what, you, that's the work that, that he's calling us here to, is you draw the connections between your day-to-day routine, and your calendar, and your to-do list, and your task management system, or whatever it might be, and your desires, and when you find those sinful epi-desires, you have to forsake them, and so I'm, if I'm working too much, and neglecting my overall physical and emotional health, because winning, matters too much to me, then I've got to repent of that, right? Or if, you know, whatever it might be, and repentance starts in the heart, but it shows up in your calendar, in your daily routine, in your practices. And so habits are also, they're adopted by the front, so habits are expressions of these in, internal epi-desires that can be kind of running our lives, they also are adopted from external pressures that shape what Paul calls, in Ephesians 4 anyway, a manner of life. In other words, if you live in an environment that is saturated with anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscenity, does that sound like the world we live in? If you live in an environment saturated by these things, you not only begin to do those same things, but the influence is so great that you, without realizing it, begin to absorb them and walk in them, and live in them, and develop habits of anger and anxiety, and a habit of slander and so forth. And again, all of this happens unconsciously. And the first step is to become aware of the way that you've been shaped by the environment that you live in, and, and been pressed into its mold, and then create new habits and practices that push back. So there are two kinds of habits. Habits of resistance. So they're habits that are designed to resist the internal and external influences that shape the rhythms and routines that make up our manner of life. Let me just give you an example. I want this to be as practical as it can be. If you struggle with anxiety, if you internally feel anxious regularly, you need to know that part of that is a sinful impulse in you. It can be other things too, of course. But also, if you look around at the world we live in, our culture is becoming increasingly... Anxious. Hyper-anxious. I mean, the news. Just read the headlines, not even the articles. The headlines, if you read them carefully, you'll notice they're crafted to grab at the anxiety that you already feel, so you'll read. We, we are doing all of this, increasing the levels of anxiety, and so you might have a habit of grabbing your phone first thing in the morning before you even get out of bed and scrolling through Instagram, which just ramps you up because you see all the things that other people are doing that you weren't invited to or that you know it, it feeds your, your anxiety about envy and so forth. Or you might read the news you know, headlines or scroll through whatever before you even get out of bed. And, and the result is before your feet hit the floor, you're already full of anxiety. And a habit of resistance then would be to limit the time you spend with technology because you realize how it's making you anxious. You realize the way it connects you to a world that is the cause of anxiety. Or a or habit might be, we're going to talk about this some, it might be to, to read your Bible before you look at your phone every day. Just think of the simplicity of that. What if you read, what if, you, what if the first thing that got your eyes every day was this? What if you just committed to reading your Bible before you got on your phone? so that you start out with the right perspective, right? So that you start the day with reality, not the news. Because those aren't the same thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe a dose of reality would help you engage the news in a more healthy way. Habits of resistance, but they're also habits of embrace. Because if we're not careful in this discussion about crucial habits, we'll not only think about all the things we need to stop doing uh, and not the things we need to start doing years ago, I read a book by Calvin Miller called Into the Depths, and he used a metaphor that stuck with me. He said, can you imagine a teenage driver showing up at the driving test with an 18-inch brake pedal and a 6-inch steering wheel? And how silly that would be. But he said, here's his words, yet this is our spiritual profile. Christians have had a curious emphasis on the brakes rather than the steering wheel. They're forever quitting this or that. It was decades into my life with Christ before it seriously occurred to me that we do not become vibrant spiritually because of the things we quit. Christians are not to be so much quitters as starters. Spiritual growth occurs by ever starting, starting, starting every day some creative new thing that will sponsor a creative walk with Christ. So he goes on to describe the moment when things changed for him spiritually. He said, I realized that I rarely focused on Jesus, but rather on all the things I needed to quit. We need habits that help us focus on Jesus. Habits that carve out time for communion with him, that embrace him as our life, that focus us on him as our life. And I should give you an example here as well. Well, how about this? How about the wisdom of God in saying, why don't you take one day every week for me? Sabbath. That's what Sabbath is, one day every week to focus on Jesus. But isn't it hard? I'll, I'm, I'm the worst Sabbath keeper in the church. I promise. It's a work day for me. Pray for pastors. It's hard for us. But, but, that, but, that, but can you see how that could become an important habit? And so you see habits of resistance, habits of embrace. And if you want to have a deep life, then you got to know the way that the spiritual combustion engine of the soul works. You got to know how change comes spiritually. You got to be intentionally replacing old habits with new ones. But thirdly, and we need to wrap it up, you need to be acting according to reality and not your feelings. Because when you go through life putting off and putting on, you're rehearsing reality. You're putting off the old you because that you is already dead. If your faith is in Jesus, verse 20, look there. It says, you died with him. The if there is a rhetorical device. It's not meant to, it's not meant to call that into question. He's saying since. It could be translated since. So if your faith is in Jesus, then you died with him. And so you're just putting to death what is already dead. That's what Paul's telling you to do here. You, you put on the new you. So you put off the old you, which is already dead. You put on the new you because that you is already alive. If your faith is, with Je- is in Jesus, then verse 1 of chapter 3 says, then you're alive with him. Not only that, you've been raised with him. Here's the thing. Here's, he says you're seated with him in heaven already right now. Jesus is in heaven. And you're in him. So guess where you are? You're in heaven with him. And this is the doctrine of our union with Christ. And it's really just a single preposition. The preposition sin, S-Y-N. And it describes two things that have been joined together. So when you believe, your faith connects you to Jesus so that when he died, you died with him. It's just as if you were there upon the cross. God does not demand payment for your sins from you because you've already paid in him. And when he was raised, you were raised with him. And Jesus is in heaven and you're there too because of your union with him. And so all that Jesus was and all that he did, all of that's yours too. That's the gospel principle. You're united with him. All that he was and all that he did is yours. And so the righteousness that comes from his life of obedience is yours. The forgiveness of your sins that comes from his death upon the cross is yours. The power that comes from his resurrection is yours. What goes for him goes for you. God's love for Jesus as his beloved son is yours. God's word to him at the beginning of his earthly ministry. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Those words are yours. If you believe in him. But from the beginning, evil has operated through unreality. And so the strategy is to get you to act according to your feelings. You might feel dead to God. You might feel like you have no chance against the epic desires raging inside. You might feel like God is a million miles away. You might feel like you're no match for the peer pressure that you face at school. But those are just feelings. What is reality? Tim Keller said it well, I think he said, though you may obey sin and though the Bible predicts that you will obey sin, you no longer have to obey it. And you take that truth, that truth, the truth that we have died with Christ and be raised with him, you take that truth and you take yourself in hand with it and you go to war against the old man. You put on Christ and you walk in him and you walk in the belovedness that is yours in Jesus and you walk in the power of his resurrection now working in and through you and you walk in the hope of heaven since you're already there. Seated with him at the right hand of God. This doctrine of union with Christ, it's the key. And so John Kent wrote uh, a hymn, all about this, and let me just finish by quoting it to you to maybe anchor your heart in the hope of the gospel as we close this morning. He says, "Twixt Jesus and the chosen race subsist the bond of sovereign grace, that hell with its infernal train shall ne'er dissolve or rent or twain. The sacred bond shall never break though earth should to her center shake, rest, doubting saint, assured of this, for God has pledged his holiness. He swore. But once the deed was done, t'was settled by the great three-one, Christ was appointed to redeem all that the Father loved in him. Hail, sacred, union, firm and strong, how great the grace, how sweet the song that rebel works should ever be, one with incarnate deity, one in the tomb, one when he rose, one when he triumphed o'er his foes, one when in heaven he took his seat, while seraphs sung at hell's defeat. That's the truth we can hold on to this morning. And as we do so, we'll find the power to be putting off and putting on. Putting off the old man and putting off the new. Pray with me as we engage that work even in these moments this morning as we come to a close. So Father, thank you for this great word, this dose of reality that you inject into our lives when for many of us, even this morning, we might have felt the sting of sin and been tempted to think something less of ourselves than what you say is true. We thank you that uh, you have revealed to us the reality uh, because we are a people that are so prone to act according to our feelings, to let our feelings get the best of us and to let our feelings define our lives. So forgive us uh, for doing that, that's that's where our repentance would begin this morning, that we would turn away, turn away from the lies uh, of the enemy, the lies that the old man perpetuates, the lie that uh, we're alone and that we have no hope of ever becoming anything more than we are now and become cynical and overwhelmed and despairing when we consider that we fought and we fought and it doesn't feel like we're making any progress and we're just still the same old yucky I'm still the same old yucky me. When that's not true, I'm already seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And it's just a matter of time before you complete the work in me of turning me as feeble and fragile and sinful as I am into a dazzling, radiant creature that to look upon me would be like looking at the sun. And that's true of every single one of us in this room. And so would you help us to hold on to that hope and then yield ourselves to you to say, have your way with us, Lord Jesus. What is it? What is it this morning that you would, that you would call me to be put off? What what do I need to be putting off? And what is it that I need to be putting on? Lord, speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Give us Give us things to work on. Call... Bring to light the reality of our sin, that we could know how to direct and pray and ask for the Spirit's work to come, for the Spirit to come and work in our lives. We need that, and so this moment, we take a moment to just sit with you in that. We say, "Here we are," but we don't have to wait until it works done to sing to you. We can sing to you because. Our relationship with you isn't isn't based upon the outcome of how all that goes. You've loved us from all eternity. You'll love us tomorrow as much as you do today. There's nothing we can do between today and tomorrow that causes you to love us any less or any more. And that, that is the victory. That is where the power comes. And so would you bring that truth home to our hearts? And then would you open our hearts to sing to you as we respond this morning to this gospel news of all that Jesus has done for us? So that we might become people that reflect back to you, your own glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, that's right, Amen. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, then the very first step of putting on and putting off is to put off, put off any other hope and to put on the confession that we just sang, to turn to Jesus and say, You're all I have. That's where faith begins. But then the process of growing in faith is just the process, is just, is just learning more and more the truth of that learning more and more, more and more turning away from any other hope and more and more turning into the confession of saying, Jesus, you're all I have. There's nothing in me, you're all I have in learning to live from that reality. That's where the power comes. And so this benediction is the promise that as he sends you now into the world, he intends to teach you that lesson. But he intends to teach it to you by being faithful to you over and over and over again. Showing you, showing up in your weakness, showing up in your failure, showing up in the crisis that you might face so that you learn that he is worthy, he's trustworthy, and he's good, and you can can put your faith in him. And so receive this benediction as he sends us now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.